0: Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Thursday, March 10th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris, continuing our position preview series and finally closing the book on the outfield. We're also going to squeeze in the utility-only players, so we're going to have some Otani talk, a little Fran Mil Reyes, little Nelson Cruz, maybe even some Gavin Sheets for you, if uh, time allows. Uh, so lots to get to on this episode. If you've listened to the outfield preview so far, we're through the first 200 overall picks, so that covers probably 50 or so outfielders. Uh, this next group that we're going to talk about, another fun group in that you've got some young players, you've got some kind of established accumulators, uh, so you can choose your own adventure with the types of players you like in this range. fun spot to take some chances on, uh, on younger players, especially if you're into that at all. So, you know, we begin where we left off with A.J. Pollock, And I have a simple AJ Pollock question. Would they play him more if he were healthier? Like, is he he a platoon plus guy on top of having a lot of injuries? Or is he actually an everyday guy because of the way they mix and match or close to an everyday guy who just misses out on playing time because of various ailments?
1: I do think one of the kind of frontiers in baseball research and the frontiers of the best—the way the best teams run their teams includes what you might roll your eyes at called load management but it includes keeping your players healthy and I talk to people around the Giants about for example when they decide Brandon Crawford's going to sit, how they make that decision and it's made based on how many stops and starts he made in the last five days you know, playing the playing his defense, or maybe even something on a bat speed, or something that they saw in the exit velocity, something very minute can make the decision. Okay, it's time for. And Brandon Crawford himself said, "I don't always feel like I need to take the blow, but like, you know, I'm cool with it. You know, it does. It does seem like I'm I'm playing better and I'm staying healthier because of it." So I think that with Pollock, they, they realized here's a guy who's had a lot of injuries in the past, and if we treat him with these kid gloves, we get a guy who can be 25% better than league average with the bat and still have some defensive value. We just have to make sure we give him these regularly scheduled blows. But you know, for people with weekly lineups, I think that makes Pollock a lot worse of a play. He's a great play, I think, in leagues where either – where it's so deep that it almost doesn't matter, and then he's undervalued, right? Like, I have in my Devil's Rejects, it's a 20-team league. I have A.J. Pollock. No one's going to give me anything for him in a dynasty league, but we just keep running him out there, and we keep getting getting value. However, in like a 12- or 15-team league with a weekly lineup, he does lose value because he's, I think, the top end of what you're going to get from his 400, 450 plate appearances. And it's not going to be something where – necessarily he's out for two weeks and that's how you lose the plate appearances it's going to be a lot of oh he's sitting friday oh and monday and oh crap saturday too so you just lose these fours and fives everywhere and it just makes it harder to roster him i mean as a bat as a player you know as a collection of you know, reach rates and barrel rates and all those things. Like I really like him. I think he's a, a really you know, disciplined, good player that hits the ball hard and makes a lot of contact. But uh as a as a person I have to sort of plug into a weekly lineup, I don't like him as much.
0: Yeah, I think that's the the key is the format, right? If you have daily moves, I think that offsets some of it, just requires you to pay attention every day, with the Dodgers being a West Coast team, maybe your alternatives have earlier lineup blocks, so you just got to make sure you're checking that right before those East Coast games start. When usually those West Coast games, yeah, it's lineups a high, just high effort own, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> like a yes, high guy. definitely frustrating in that regard. I was trying to see here. I've got the Baseball HQ five year injury log: 2017 strained right groin, missed 50 days. 2018 fractured left thumb. 2019 right elbow inflammation. Elbow. Uh, in 2021, left hamstring and right hamstring trouble. 32 days missed there. So yeah, at least 30 days missed in each of the last four full seasons. He was and that's very before healthy. his
1: big 2016 fractured elbow, fractured shoulder, missed the whole season thing.
0: Yeah, it it's not impossible for him to top the playing time that he's had. So far with the Dodgers, but I think you'd still want to cap that expectation around 500 plate appearances. And if you take him seeing that value, know that you will lose a little bit. I think a 15-team league is deep enough. A 12-team probably is deep enough, but you you really could end up with less of the counting stats than you'd like because of the the in-and-out nature and then having to make those decisions to leave him in for a partial week or a full week on uh, lock day, where he's not in the lineup. I think that's always a difficult decision to make.
1: Yeah, and realize that when you look at his auction calculator value for 11 bucks, right, and ostensibly more than Max Kepler or Austin Hayes or Dylan Carlson or Miles Straw even, according to the auction calculator, realize that the auction calculator does not model weekly versus daily lineup setting very well. So you're going to have to, Sort of do some mental math there and don't. And, and like, I think every draft I've been in, AJ Pollock has been there longer than the other $11 players. It's just a question of how long I'm going to let him sit there. But don't just take that value and be like, AJ Pollock, 11 bucks, taking him now. You know, I'd, and in fact, all those names I just said, wouldn't you take all the, you take all those guys over, over AJ Pollock? I guess the big would you rather is Max Kepler. I would take Pollock over Kepler.
0: I'm not sure I would, man. I think the market has that right. That's a like Kepler's basically at the bottom of the group of players that are, are in the 200 to 300 range. Pollock is, yeah. is at the top. Maybe they should be closer to the middle.
1: I guess the batting average is a big thing. I think sink. we can
0: jump around a little bit within this group. I don't think we have to r- rigorously go player to player in order at this stage of the board. I think Kepler is interesting because I had not thought about this with him yet. Uh, but with the talk of banning the shift in 2023 and beyond... Al Melkier pointed mm. out that Kepler was actually among the players that took the biggest hit or takes the biggest hit as a result of the shift because it, it's. It, I mean, it makes sense. That if you look at Kepler's profile and you start covering numbers he up, he pulls a lot of balls, but the the strikeout rate's good. The walk rate is good. He has some speed, right? He was 10 for 10 as a base stealer. He popped 19 homers and just 490 plate appearances. And then the slash line is gross. 211, 306, 413 last year. It's just – it it doesn't seem like nearly enough production for a player with those core skills.
1: I will offer a little bit of sourced and reported caution on the idea that the shift is going to go away this year. I have talked to multiple sources about this and there's a lot of feedback running through this. There's systems this has to go through, even if, they give the commissioner more power in this new CBA. There are still committees. There's still approval processes, and it doesn't. I would not draft this uh, this year based on the idea that the shift is going away this season. I think that's too fast. And from what I hear within the system, there are there are there's more information. People want more information, and and the the the, the systems aren't ready to sort of. Speed stamp that approval. You know what I mean.
0: Oh yeah, it seemed like it was coming a year from now too. If they were trying to push that in for 2022, I mean, wouldn't every team have a slightly different approach to what they've already? Teams have already made moves for this season. You can't change the rules after players have been signed. Think of what it's like to have a dynasty league. Like you couldn't, you couldn't on
1: this day in a dynasty league be like, oh, by the way, we have three extra roster spots. Like, yeah, you know, like okay, everybody, three extra keepers. What? Like we. Like I, we had did a whole trade deadline last season and I tried to get down to these keepers. What are you talking about? So yeah, I, I think that, you know, bigger bases, uh, you know, some of these stuff has at least been modeled, you know, and at least been, you know, has reached, reached certain levels in the minor leagues, but banning the shift, I think is still on the level of high A or whatever. So I don't, I think that banning the shift, it might be on the same level as, as the robo lumps where it's like, you know, two or three years away. Anyway. I like Kepler because he does a lot of things right, you know? I think that one year he could get a little lucky on balls in play, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. the luckiest Babbitt we've seen from him is 276. He hit 243 that year. I think with now the power rate that he has now, if he had a 276 Babbitt next season, uh, he could hit 260, you know? And if he can hit 250 or 260, I mean, there are projections for him to hit 240, so I'm just saying, hey, bet on the guy who has a really good walk rate, a really good contact rate, has some speed, will steal bases. Last year had the best barrel rate of his career, you know, hits the ball hard enough, and and then hope he gets a little lucky, and you get a 250, 260 average with, you know, 27 homers and 10 stolen bases. Like then you're going to be talking about a, a lot of value, and I think it's everyday value, whereas Pollock isn't. So anyway, I would say maybe I'd take Pollock over Kepler, but I think it's a lot closer than the, what is it, almost 100 points of ADP to suggest.
0: Yeah, I think Kepler versus Ian Happ might be a good toss-up because I think mm. they, they have similar... Now you have
1: two guys with the batting average
0: risk. Yeah, similar flaws with the batting average risk, uh, kind of similar speed. Happ was 9 for 11 as a base stealer. I think both are going to play a lot. Maybe there's a little more playing time risk for Kepler than there is for Happ, given the the makeup of those, those two rosters. But... The swing and miss in Haps game is still a concern, right? The K rate was just under 30% last year. It's actually ticked up each of the last two seasons if we're counting what happened in 2020. But if we were counting what happened in 2020, we should also point out he popped 12 homers in just 57 games that year after popping 11 in 58 games the year before that. So I do think it's possible that we have not seen the best season at the big league level from Ian Happ yet, and the projections point to him as a pretty good player—a 240 uh, with 26 bombs and seven steals. Like that would be really nice where he's going, especially if the runs and RBIs are in that 70-plus range as projected.
1: Yeah, the barrel rates have been really high; they've been higher, more consistently higher than Kepler. It's just he's a little bit more of your traditional profile of a guy who you know strikes out a lot and hits a lot of barrels. So. Uh, It is interesting, though. Uh, He's projected for mostly a better batting average than Kepler across the board. So despite this strikeout flaw, you know, I suppose I would take uh, Hap over Kepler. Yeah,
0: A little bit more of a health risk, I guess. I think so. I mean, 2019, only played 58 games that year. So I think you have to take that into account.
1: Oh, dude. In 2019, Hap had 429 plate appearances in the minors.
0: Yeah, he got sent down.
1: I thought he I thought he was more of an injury risk. I mean, that's 580 plate appearances that year.
0: 2018 was 460. I thought he had an injury that year, though, too. I thought it was like hamstring strains or something. Yeah. Verifying now. Adam Duvall, like, is he good, cheap power, or is he just a, a player that's going to fall apart on us? Because I can't figure him out.
1: I think of him as like Eddie Rosario at this point, where I'm like very little real-life value. Very close to being DFA'd, you know, has been DFA'd recently, that sort of deal. I just, I I don't really want to spend too much and roster a guy like that because if his real life team could DFA him, then he loses all value.
0: A correction on Ian Hatt, by the way, just just a rib injury last year. Didn't have any hamstring stuff in the past. I've, for some reason, had him in my mind as a player that lost time with soft tissue stuff. Me too. Yikes. Me too. Apologies for the error.
1: Just a rib thing. And then I guess I'm up and down. But, um, well, Duval, here's here's kind of my example. Last year he hit 30, what is it, 38 homers, 113 RBI, 228 average. He was probably, I, you know, I would love to see the the rotowire earn value because I'm, I'm sure it was high. Well, he was 3% above league average with the bat. Now, he had the best defensive numbers of his career, so his war was all right. But I think that's a one-year blip. I don't think he's, I mean, were they playing him in center some? And I don't think he's that. I think he's more of a corner outfielder with okay defense. So a corner outfielder with okay defense who will be right around league average with a bat. That is the most fungible profile in baseball. Nobody's paying money for that.
0: I think the other problem I have with it is taking the low average masher in the outfield because as I've built more teams this draft season, same as most years, I've needed to you get, need to get late speed. speed there, and you get you can see a handful five for five last year, but I'm looking for ten plus usually for my fourth or fifth outfielder. I, I think I'm if I'm looking at other players in this range, I'm more likely to take Bobby Dollback as a corner chasing the low average mm-hmm. power profile with the run production because I think it's it's less likely to me that Bobby Dahlbeck vanishes into thin air from a playing time perspective.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to get steals, So that's why I mentioned Carlson Kepler Hap. You know, those are, those are the types I'm looking for. They're all batting average risks too. Right. But they're going to come with some speed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think in this range, Harrison Bader still stands out to me as someone that I, I really like as a do everything sort of player. I think there's at least a path for him to hit a little higher in the order too. that. That's that's on the table. Uh, We saw some weird stuff in his plate skills last year. It was only like two-thirds of a season for him because of injuries, but a 21.2% K rate. That was the lowest of his career, but his walk rate dipped. He'd carried a double-digit walk rate in 2019 and into 2020. That fell to 6.7%, so maybe a little bit of a concern there, but more power than ever. We still saw him contributing as a base stealer. His defense in center field is valuable. I think that keeps him on the field a lot too, even if he runs into some slump issues. And it's only, it's only been fourteen hundred plate appearances in the big leagues. It feels like he's collected like two thousand. So I think it's still possible that he's unlocking the best offensive profile that we've seen from him so far.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that you know he's basically given you uh, you know fifteen hundred plate appearances. He has ten WAR in that time. So you're talking about three seasons where he's been like three full seasons of sort of combined work or over four seasons. He's been above average as a player, and it's been great defense with with a 99 WRC plus. So basically just league average uh, batted ball, you know, league average uh, outcomes at the plate. I like him because you know, in that barrel rate, which has gone from sort of eight to seven to 12% in 2020 back to seven last year, I see an above average barrel rate. I don't see like a plus barrel rate. Plus barrel rate is like 10%. That's when you really get my my eye, right? So for his career, 7.6% barrel rate, not great. But decent now you put that together with the good defense you see like he's had some good strikeout rates in some years and you could see a path for something where he puts it all together one year where he has that 270 batting average 25 homers and 10 to 15 steals and he's worth a lot if he does that I have to give you I feel duty bound to give you the rest of the story here a little bit because I'm working on a project right now and I can't explain the whole project but in the course of this project I have now talked to a scout and a hitting coach about Harrison Bader in the last week. And both of them said basically the same thing, which is, I don't know if he has the bat. Hmm. I just find that a fascinating thing to say because here's a guy who has a max EV, uh, you know, over 112 for most of his or 111 for most of his career, has a good barrel rate, you know, has hit. Forty-seven homers, in, you know, over the course of what would be like kind of three full seasons or two and a half full seasons, uh, you know, I'm kind of surprised that they would say that. But you know, he's also a guy that's you know, he had a he had a 128 game t- 2019 where he had an 82 WRC plus, uh, which barely plays, you know, and that's the kind of thing where if Lars Newbar comes in and plays really well, there are other people on this Cardinals roster that can play center field. So if, if he if the bat isn't there, then he can quickly become a fourth outfielder.
0: I guess I, I would wonder for the evaluators who don't believe in the bat, are they looking at him and saying he's really just done most of his damage on fastballs for his career and breaking stuff has always been a problem prior to 2021? I think that's the, looking at the results from, from baseball savant. there is a, a clear flaw for him with non-fastballs, but that changed last year and do we not see enough of him to believe that that skill has has been proved? Right. I mean, if he's able to do damage on on breaking balls, that changes quite a bit about the profile. If he's not, then there's a simple mm. book for how to get him out.
1: It's true. For his career, his his pitch values, the, the sort of uh, the the summing up the the value of what he's done on those on those pitches is really bad on sliders and pretty bad on curveballs. But last year was the first year he was positive on both of those pitches in his career it also came with his worst year on four-seam fastball. So <laughs> there's so often like a give and take on these things where maybe he found something where he targeted sliders and, and tried to hit sliders. I don't know, but uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I also just from a, a scouting standpoint, like I've said this before, but I like, I like his body for baseball. Like I think that, you know, kind of, he's shortish. What is he? I mean, he's six foot zero, but I mean, in baseball, that's not that's not tall. You know, he has a very athletic build. He's a bit athletic build, but also just like he's really like I call it like a like a, a fire hydrant. Like he's very compact, and 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 to me, it seems like he has very good rotational like energy and and uh, velocity and trunk rotation is something that we know from from research is super important for baseball. It relates to bat speed. It relates to arm speed for pitching. So I don't know. That's what I see when I see him. I see someone who can rotate the trunk really well. And I see someone who has a good baseball body. So I don't know. I was kind of surprised to hear the, the scout and the hitting coach that I really revere uh, say these things, but it's uh it's definitely a boomer bust. I, a little bit more boomer bust than the projections suggest. The projections are like, "No, man, he'll play center field and worst-case scenario, he has like a 235 average and and, you know, still gives you kind of 20 and 10 type numbers, which seems like, well, if that's the worst-case scenario, I'll I'll buy him, but I think there's a little bit more Worst case, that's not represented really well by the projections.
0: I'll take my chance on the worst case happening because we're talking about a guy outside the top 200 that helps us in an area where a lot of players in this range carry Steals. similar risk, if not more risk, because they don't have the same defensive chops that that Bader can bring to the table.
1: You're going you're gonna to do a ranking for me, Bader, Bader, uh, Hap, Kepler?
0: These are all very similar. I would go Hap first, Bader second, kepler third there you go which is exactly the order they go in
1: go i might go kepler kepler Bader. but you're right i mean the twins uh, you know have a glut of outfielders but i you know the cardinals have some extra outfielders you
0: like Lars Nutbar.
1: i do like nars Nutbar. i know you know i trained with him i hit with him <laughs> uh we took our shirts off in front of each other but it's a special uh, bond so uh, I, I, under-
0: <laughs> I understand <laughs>
1: No, but I also know that he's added seven miles an hour of bat speed uh over the last two years in his training process, and bat speed I think is crucial. I mean it's it's what creates exit velocity, so uh,
0: I, I think Newt Barr could find plenty of playing time as well. It takes his one of those outfielders missing time and suddenly he's a regular in a lineup that I think will be improved a NL-D-H, bit this year. D-H, you
1: know, that helps
0: too. Probably mostly filled by an outfielder on that team, I think. Juan Yep is pretty interesting, though, just for the sake of extra playing time is available and defense won't necessarily matter as how they parse that out but new got more time in the majors
1: so like if you're just looking at kind of usage i think new is a little bit ahead of the offense looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 u.s based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: How about a triangle match? Three young outfielders all going in this range. We've got Jesus Sanchez in Miami. We've got Joe Adele with the Angels and Andrew mm-hmm. Vaughn with the White Sox. I mean, three guys that if you went back, Two years in time, expectations for Joe Adele would have been kind of in a tier of their own. Excitement about Andrew Vaughn probably would have exceeded the excitement about Jesus Sanchez at that time and now you could look at them and probably argue them in almost any order that you want. So I'm curious if you have interest in any of these three players, all of these three players, or if there's a clear favorite for you from the bunch.
1: Okay, so floor and ceiling seems to matter here. Highest floor I award to Andrew Vaughn. Lowest floor goes to Joe Adele. Highest ceiling goes to Joe Adele. Lowest ceiling might go to Andrew Vaughn. Mm. And to me, Jesus Sanchez is right in the middle. Here's my reasoning Andrew Vaughn does a lot of things well. He has good plate discipline, has good bat, bat speed, but he is convinced that the best approach is Oppo, sort of right center for him. And I just disagree. There's a lot more power there to be unlocked if he can he can pull more of his barrels. So I, I don't... And with that, with that working for him, I think, you know, with... Like, he hasn't really struggled so hard yet and where he hasn't struggled enough to change that approach, then I don't know if he's going to change that approach. So then I think he's kind of a guy who's going to have a decent average, a good OBP, and less power than you'd expect. And he doesn't have any speed. So... You know, that's why I think his his ceiling is lower. Joe Adele, it's like if the, the strikeout rate, if, if he can, like, click something there where he doesn't strike out a ton and he takes advantage of all his batted balls, you know, all of his bat speed, then we're talking about a guy who could hit for power and steal bases. The, 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 that team could really use another star. So, you know, it's, it, either that clicks or he's back in the minors trying to figure it out, I feel like. And then he's a Sanchez. I think the opportunity is there. I think he's going to play, so it's decent floor. I don't think the ceiling is that amazing. He doesn't steal bases. Uh, he doesn't have a great plate approach. He doesn't make a ton of contact. I know he has good strikeout rates in the minors, but they're paired with bad swinging strike rates. So I think generally he's kind of a guy who has a middling batting average, decent power, but it's in a bad park, no stolen bases, and, and some risk in the playing time too just because – you know, that team is trying to improve. And, you know, if he doesn't do much better than uh, last year, you know, he could find himself in a bit of a part-time role. Or, you know, if he struggles and he come off of last year, then he could be back in the minors.
0: I think the way I look at this group, I like Vaughn the most right now. If we're just playing mm-hmm. 2022 only, I think Keeper in Dynasty makes this a lot more fun and, and challenging to figure well, you,
1: out. You want to buy floor a lot in in, in one-year leagues, I think.
0: Right. And I think... Of all the of all the skills, the underlying skills you look at with these guys, I think both Sanchez and Adele have the kind of swing and miss in their profile that can really cause some problems with both playing time and even sticking on the roster in the short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the O swing percentage for Adele was still at about 40%, even though he improved the K rate in the time that he spent yeah. in the majors last year. So we have to figure that out. We really don't know how the Angels are going to solve the playing time puzzle in the outfield. Are they giving Justin Upton a month, two months, half a season, all season to to show us that he can still be at least a, a semi regular at this point? So then, I know we're, it's
1: jumping ahead, but Brandon Marsh counts here, and I think Brandon Marsh is a little bit more ready than Joe Adele. And so, if you're going to give Justin Upton time, it's Upton Marsh. Um, it's Upton Marsh Trout in the outfield. Yeah. And you're not likely to keep Adele up if he's, even if he's, if he's struggling to kind of part time DH. Remember, Otani's basically the DH. So, Adele in this format, if all those guys are playing, Adele would get four plate appearances a week, two when, you know, like four to six plate appearances a week. And that, I don't think he'd be in the majors for that.
0: Yeah. So, I I think with, with these players, Vaughn can be an everyday player still, right? He can be in the first base DH mix with Jose Abreu. And it's a good lineup. So, run production should be there. Vaughn only struck out 21.5% of the time in his debut last year. We've talked about the leap from high A in 2019 to the big leagues while learning a new position. And yeah, it wasn't it wasn't amazing on the surface, but let, let's take a, a 94 WRC plus in those circumstances and, and call out a W, especially when the K rate was very much in control. The walk rate was good. The problem I have with Sanchez, it, it's better... Better path to playing time than Adele for sure. His performance will probably dictate a lot more about his role than Adele's where someone else's performance might dictate a lot about his role. Mm-hmm. I still see Sanchez probably falling into a platoon. He's a big side platoon guy at a minimum, but I'd be I'd be a little surprised if they immediately let him play against all the lefties they see too. I, I think that's part of where you lose a little something with him, even though he's been young for the level and the power we saw last year, the dominance triple A. I think showed us there's more there than we thought when the Marlins acquired him from the Rays in that trade. So I'm taking Vaughn of this group. I'm probably going Vaughn, Sanchez, Adele, because I think Adele's short-term playing time concerns and uh, chase rates outside the zone are, are two things that I'm legitimately worried about.
1: You know, Sanchez fits into this long term conversation we've had on this podcast about, you know, trying to predict guys that have decent strikeout rates in the minors, but then blow up in the major leagues and trying to look at different things about them that predict these huge increases. Because if you look at Sanchez, he's striking out 18% of the time in the minors and 32% of the time in the majors, right? And, uh, and like if you could figure out which one of those two was more right, uh, you could you could uh, make some money off of Jesus Sanchez, I guess. And I guess what I'm asking is if anybody, you know, is looking for uh, some some studying to do, um, I, I think that it'd be interesting to put players into buckets. And I would look at you know we don't have a lot of numbers for the minor leagues. Like it would be great to have reach rates for the minor leagues. And in some cases you can you can find your way around it. And if you contact me on Twitter, I can. I can point you to some places that will help you scrape some minor league stats. It won't be comprehensive for the, all of the minor leagues, but you might be able to get some minor leaguers' reach rates, and you might be able to do that. But with all the minor leaguers on Fangraphs, you can look at swinging strike rate, walk rate, and strikeout rate. And I would like to just put guys into buckets and be like, guys with low walk rates and low strikeout rates see a large and high swinging strike rates see a large increase in strikeout rates in the major leagues, you know? I think you could do some fairly simple analysis here and help us out a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because uh, there are guys that strike out 18% of the minor leagues and strike out 22% in the major leagues. And then there are guys like Jesus Sanchez that strike out 18% of the minor leagues and strike out 30% in the major leagues. And I'm not much closer to understanding that than the first time we talked about that on this podcast.
0: I still think there might be... A big difference in the number of high fastballs you see between AAA and the big leagues. Mm. I think that could be a big part of it. I'm looking at you know, where Jesus Sanchez swings and misses a lot, and not surprisingly, it's up and out of the zone, up and in, uh, middle up. Seems to be a little bit of a problem for him, too. It's not... It's not in a troubling sort of way. You know, it, it, it mm-hmm. looks more like a recognition problem than a bat speed problem. Just looking at some of the the heat maps and things. But yeah, I think this is this is one of those areas. I mean, we talk, I think Keston Hero was the first player that kind of pushed us in this direction where it was kind of like, this guy had a good hit tool and didn't strike out a lot in the minors. And now he's got a strikeout problem in the big leagues. What went wrong? And that's that's where that scraping, the, the scraping actually gives you
1: savant data, I think, for, for the minor leaguers that you get. So you might be able to find, say something like guys who had holes. I don't know. You have to de- define holes, right? But if you could say like this person, these this group of players had a really bad contact rate on pitches up in the top third of the zone and then their, their strikeout rates explode in the major leagues, that would help us understand that.
0: Absolutely. Let's go to uh, an oatmeal player, Charlie Blackman. Oatmeal with a beard, I think in this case. Uh, <laughs> is it, good roster filler Charlie Blackman at this stage of his career I mean the the park still I think keeps the batting average a pretty nice spot where Michael Brantley kind of fits into this range a little later as an older player that brings plenty of average Brantley and, goes after Blackman yeah that that's surprising to me yeah
1: that doesn't make any sense to me wow I would see I'd put them both on the board and maybe take one you know once the other one but that means I guess I get Brantley that's okay uh, I think they're very similar. The The difference would be maybe like the two or three stolen bases or the Coors effect.
0: I would say the other difference could be the counting stats. The runs and RBIs for Brantley should be a notch above what Blackman brings. Even if Blackman has a little extra pop, I think I'd make that trade off to get the better run production.
1: Brantley always had this, this bad ankle injury that, that made me worried for him. But He's seemingly found a way to stay healthy. I guess last year coming off of eight homers in the in the full season is uh is turning people off on of him. But, you know, the projections are for eleven for Brantley and seventeen for for Blackman and Blackman only hit thirteen himself last year, so
0: I don't know. It's just not. It, it, they're they're not as much of, of like safe free squares as as the projection suggests. I don't feel like they're that yeah. safe. I think there's actual downside in, in Blackman's profile, especially that I would I would shy away from him and and take my chance on Brantley if I'm trying to regain some batting average in in this range.
1: You know what? They strike me as as good plays in, in one type of league versus another. I think that they're better plays in mono leagues and auction leagues because I think they're undervalued given what they you know what they'll give you but they don't fit in snakes that well because like we said a lot of times you're looking for late speed right mm-hmm. in your outfield and they're not going to give you that and um, they're a, they're also a home run risk so they're kind of a one category outfielder that's why in a mono league, you'd be like, nah, man, I would take a one-category guy that only costs me $5 when, you know, everyone else is, is paying a lot more for their guys, right? So if you can get one of these guys for cheap in an auction league or in a mono league, then I'd do it. In, like, a 15-team league, I don't have any shares of these guys because my late outfielders are more of the Kepler hat variety. I even have... I have Marsh and I don't have a Blackman or, or, or a um,
0: Brandley, Yeah, a lot of players that go in the bottom half of this group to me are, are guys that I genuinely just do not want to put on my roster. I, I think we talked <laughs> we talked about Lane Thomas, I want to say, maybe at the end of the season. There's some interesting things in his profile. I'm not convinced he's an everyday guy, though. I, I see him as, as more of a two-thirds playing time share sort of player. So I think the bottom could drop well, out on him. That's weird as
1: a righty. What's what's when are you taking him? When you take him off the field, defense?
0: I think you're taking him off against tough righties. I think you're playing him against all lefties and some righties. That's that's my fear with Lane Thomas. Maybe it's unfounded, but that's that's what I worry about when I look at him.
1: He's an interesting cat because the swinging strike rate's real low. The bail rate has jumped all over the place, and it's in a small sample. But yeah, like a seven percent bail rate, he could be Bader-esque, actually, couldn't he? I mean, there's a lot of similarities to Bader.
0: Yeah, projections steer him that way. They all have the the K rate jumping up from where it was when he improved it a year ago, and I don't know if that's fair. He's got a really, really good
1: eye at the plate and a really small swing strike rate. I think there's some upside here, man. I mean, the, if you told me a guy had an okay barrel rate, a really good sense of the zone, and great bat to ball skills, I'd be like, and and some speed, I'd be like, yeah, give me give me a share.
0: I guess I'm. Who else am I? Who am I worried about from a playing time perspective? Like you have to, Will have Myers to outline the fear. Uh, I've been within that depth chart. Oh, right? you're talking
1: about in 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 Washington.
0: Yeah, I, I I see Andrew Stevenson being a lefty, and that that gives him a possible platoon yeah, partner.
1: To me, he's defense only. He's like another Michael Taylor who they didn't really. I I see Stevenson as a more of a risk to Robles, hmm. and I see Thomas as having enough bat to to play a corner. So Yadiel Hernandez is the big one, but Yadiel Hernandez is going to be the NLDH if they have a DH.
0: Yeah, maybe it's the, if they didn't have a DH, carryover still still kind of hanging in the air for me. Then I think he versus Yadiel
1: Hernandez would be interesting. But Yadiel Hernandez is also like 31, and isn't this kind of a rebuilding team, or is it is it trying to win this year?
0: I think they're more in the rebuild, but at the same time, if somehow they have a healthy Strasburg and... Bounce back from Corbin? Ah, come on, this isn't going to happen. There is there any chance Thomas they finish? Is play, Isn't it? Uh, yeah, is there any chance they finish higher than third in this division? Like any chance at all? I don't see it. No, can't because
1: be. Alcides Escobar is a starter, and even even if, if he goes, Luis Garcia doesn't really. Luis Garcia could be a younger, cheaper. I don't even know if much better than Alcides Escobar. You know, Cesar Hernandez at this point is kind of a stopgap. Kiboom might not work out and Michael Franco is the backup plan. Yikes. Dude, 3 quarters of this infield is a mess. Mm, yeah. I know you have one of the b- top 3 players in baseball in the outfield and and Lane Thomas and Victor Robles. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but Strasburg, you know, Strasburg could be hurt, Corbin hasn't really shown me much. I don't I'm out on Josiah Gray as everybody knows. I'm really out on Eric Fetty, I don't know who's in on Joe Ross. I, the names after that get worse, and you, you know, Cade Cavalli could could come in there, but he's not going to you know put the whole team on his shoulders. So
0: Lane Thomas, during his brief time in the big league so far, two hundred and fifty one plate appearances against righties, he's hit one eighty three with a two eighty seven oh no. OBP and a three sixty seven oh no. slug with a that's so a seventy eight oh WRC no. plus. My fears are, are rational in the skills, but I think the numbers you're pointing to are a good justification to say 250 plate appearances probably doesn't tell us the whole story. They're more justified in giving Lane Thomas 500 plate appearances than they are in playing a lot of the other guys that they have he in the must organization. He really good against lefties if those are
1: scores against righties. He's, he's, he's above average for uh, his career overall. <laughs> so what does he have, like a 130 WRC plus against lefties? 174. Oh, 174. No, that's awful, dude. I mean, yes, from a mathematical standpoint, there's a huge amount of regression and we almost shouldn't even look at these numbers because they're so small sample however you know you know teams are looking at that to some extent and they might be penciling it in for the wrong side of the platoon against Stevenson which is a fair amount of risk alright I'll give you that he's probably riskier um,
0: than people suggest but we agree that the depth chart is is a well a lack, for lack of a better description a poop Malu- sandwich
1: No <laughs> <Yeah>. why <Well>, did I <laughs> use your nice term and you use mine <laughs>
0: the heck is that <laughs> we've spent too much time together dude yeah well the other negative influence in my life is nando and he loves yadiel hernandez so maybe that's the other voice in my mm. head that's but i
1: i think he can play for i think he can play dh
0: i think the dh spot makes more sense I also think because he's very old there's not a lot of window for him to to prove that he's Got something he can bring. <laughs> um, other players, similar players in this range. Will Myers, I mean, lots of swing and miss, but kind of an AJ Pollocky sort of roto profile, or maybe more Ian Happ like, I guess, based on some of the no, assessments I like, we drew. The
1: reason I like Pollock, it, the reason I like Pollock, is because they don't seem to want to play him a lot. So I get that same feeling where like I don't think he's going to get a 600 plate appearances this year,
0: but that will keep him. Per game, like it's sort of like we talk about with the the way the Rays and some teams manage their pitching. Where if you don't overexpose the pitcher, you get the better ERA and WHIP because yeah. you're using him just <laughs> right. So you're getting that on the hitting <laughs> side with Pollock because you're you're playing him at just the right level to keep him as healthy as he can possibly be. The slash line couldn't be better. Starts against all lefties, plays against
1: half righties. Maybe I don't know. I, right now, it looks like he'll get full plate appearance, but I think this Padres team is not done. I wouldn't be surprised. I've heard a little bit about like, you know, that whole idea of like pairing, you know, uh, was it Hassel with Hosmer to get rid of him? I think that if they if they pull the trigger on that, then a lot of things open. Especially also, what if the CBA jumps? Which it will. One of the problems was, you know, that they were at two fifteen last year. That's where they are, and they didn't want to go into the luxury tax. Well, if the CBA jumps to two thirty, then they get an extra fifteen million. If they get rid of Hosmer, that's another an extra extra fifteen million. What if this team had thirty million dollars to spend? You know, what if they had thirty or forty million dollars to spend? I think, uh, you know, they'd probably spend the, it. The, I think they would spend it. Yeah, <laughs> I think they feel like they're right there, and if they could just get a first baseman and an outfielder uh, that could hit, I mean, uh, say a Suzuki, uh, or maybe even uh, some of the smaller level outfielders, but above the sort of Tommy Fan level free agent outfielders, maybe like a Schwarber, you Schwarber, know, Schwarber Conforto, yeah, yeah. There's, I think that there's a possibility of something like that for for them.
0: Let's talk about Austin Hayes for a moment. He gets a slight ding with the fences moving back at Camden Yards. We've been waiting for a long time for Hayes to put it all together, to be healthy, uh, to kind of claim his place in the Orioles' outfield mix. I think there's actually some, some Bader similarities here, just in terms of what he does, right? Defensively in center field adds some value there. Maybe not quite as good defensively as Bader, but certainly brings enough to get playing time there. Better contact rates. I mean, th-
1: this is this is a profile I like. Honestly, I, I like. I, I know there's the, the stadium and stuff, but here's a guy with a seven percent barrel rate who was jumped to nine percent last year. Has a twenty percent strikeout rate for his career and is he has shown the ability to sometimes lay off pitches. I mean, I know that it's probably like a six percent walk rate, and he's not you know going to be amazing long term because of that that plate approach i think in the short term this is where athleticism wins out and i think i really do think he can hit these projections which are 260 22 homers seven stolen bases and i i think there's more i think there's more upside beyond it just because you know he's 26 years old this is his peak season this could be this could be
0: this could be his best year it's actually a, a little bit like the avisail garcia uh, profile too it took a little while for for health reasons for for Avi to get there but I mean we saw the the power take a pretty big step forward from Hayes so uh, I think even if you want to dial back on the power just a little bit with those changes he does a few other things really well and could end up with a very large share of playing time as part of that regular outfield mix in Baltimore
1: yeah it's not nobody's nobody's really pushing him DJ Stewart's not pushing him no
0: uh, what do you think about Rymel Tapia as a Miles Straw light? He does not have center field defense to fall back on for a uh, <laughs> playing time stabilizer, but he does have probably the worst depth chart in baseball working in his favor.
1: Maybe the worst uh, front office in baseball. Maybe <laughs> <Probably> the <laughs> lightest, uh, just...
0: least staff front office in baseball.
1: Yeah, Nick. Yeah, they've got five people in the R and department. Nick Roke and I reported that they, their R and D guy, that. That they hired to be the director of R and D, uh, they parted acrimoniously. Um, you know, some people call it a firing; some people not uh, saying it wasn't a firing. So there's uh, there's some real dysfunction in that front office. It probably goes all the way to the ownership. I would normally say, you know, he's in that group of bad baseball players that could lose his job at any time. I wonder if that. It, you know if if that doesn't really register for the, the Rockies you know what I mean he's projected
0: for zero war well that's you know when when the alternatives are projected for zero or less yeah
1: right yeah I guess it, it could get worse in Colorado right um, I, I've I've got him in a couple places for cheap steals and you know in a draft and hold and stuff like that where I'm hoping I I think he's better if you don't have to play him all the time what I want for you if you take Romo Tapia is that you've got him on your bench and you
0: play him at home in Colorado. This is basically what I want. you doing the same thing with Garrett Hampson, or you not even messing with Hampson because the floor there might be even lower?
1: Well, Hampson can play an infield position. Is the floor lower on him?
0: He had a 65 WRC plus last year. Can't really make contact. A career 67 WRC plus now in over 1,000 big league plate appearances.
1: God, why are the Rockies so bad at this?
0: I mean, I have some theories, but I think we've already shared enough of them, so we'll we'll spare everybody. He's got more power than than Tapia, right? Does that even matter?
1: I mean, we're talking about like ten homers versus
0: eight. <laughs> he's thirty five percent worse than a league average player. The kinds of like play, and he's done it three years in a row with some decent playing time. Yeah, we have uh, considerable evidence here that he's probably not even a big league caliber hitter. Can't we just say blanket? Well, I would like to say blanket,
1: don't draft bad players. However, uh, Tapia is about the closest I can get to maybe draft him if they steal a bunch of bases and play for the Rockies. But I don't know if I can, I can extend that blanket approval to, to Hampson.
0: Yeah, the other players that go late late in this range, I mean, Tommy Pham just needs a team we've talked about. You guys know I love him. Yeah, it it makes sense. Mark Canha probably plays a little less with the Mets, though, than he did in Oakland, so I think there's a slight counting stats hit coming from him. Also,
1: the biggest uh, hit-by-pitch guy in the major leagues, so... Uh, always the chance that he misses time with a fractured something or other.
0: Yeah, I think both Mike Yastrzemski and Anthony Santander are kind of interesting. They they go right in this Max Kepler range. Wait a second, that's weird.
1: The Mets just signed the two guys that benefit the most from hit by pitches.
0: Of course they did. Because they probably <laughs> somehow overlooked that in in the analysis. They probably had people saying, or "Hey, or that OBP like has OVP. some bad OBP in it." And, yeah. and someone else was like, "Doesn't matter. It's OBP." Well, I guess if you get if you get like three of them, then like one should be healthy at all times. You could, yeah, if you, if you lean into the <laughs> uh, hit by pitch OBP guys, and you just have enough of them, you know, hopefully only <laughs> one gets hurt, and then the depth that you have covers uh, covers what you have. But Mikey Strimski should still play a lot, even if they add an outfielder in San Francisco, and Anthony Santander could end up being that third regular outfielder. In Baltimore, right? If we if we think Hayes and Mullins are are the first two, there's no reason why yeah. Santander can't be the the third.
1: It's not a strict oatmeal situation because they have some flaws and some strength and stuff. But I think, you know, as far as like regular playing time, you know, you know, non-zero uh, speed um, in, in terms of like two or three or four uh, you know, st- bags, um, you know, twenty mid twenties homers. Santander, I think, maybe a little bit better batting average. Um, and then you know he's younger, so I will take Santander over Yastrzemski. But I think uh similar players.
0: Even with the low average last year, Mike Yastrzemski was still an above-average player offensively, based on WRC plus, which I'm kind of surprised to see. I, I remember the slash line being bad; it was 224, 311, 457. But the K rate didn't really go up. The walk rate was still solid.
1: 10% barrel rate for his career. I mean, it's it's. He does hit the ball hard, and there was, I think, some bad luck last year. The Babip really tanked. Maybe he got shifted hardcore, but uh, he was really lucky, Babip early in his career, and then he, I think he was unlucky last year. So he'll find something in between, I think.
0: If I had to pick an over or under on where the projections are with average, I'd say over even the most optimistic average at 242. I think he, he's going to have some bounce back just in, in that category, the power. So you take
1: uh, Yaz over Santander?
0: Yeah, better team, better counting stats. Even even if Santander might be a more exciting player, I, I think I'm looking for floor if I'm looking at these profiles. Mm, plausible. It's not, a, not necessarily a landslide, but let's go outside the top 300 and we'll fold in someone who does go in this range as part of that conversation, prospects in the outfield. Julio Rodriguez goes a little bit earlier than the likes of Riley Green and Vidal Brujan and Josh Lowe. I think it's simple in redrafts. With Julio Rodriguez, I think you can draft him where he goes. I think you can be excited about that. And I think you may have to be willing to cut him in the second or third week of the season if you have injury problems and he doesn't get the early, early promotion that you're hoping for. The reason why I think it's possible he'd get that early promotion. If you look at most projection systems, he's the third or fourth best hitter on the Mariners this year. (laughs) So if they want to go to the playoffs, they probably need to at least try putting him on the roster sooner rather than later. And if they have to follow the Kelnick, send him back down plan. Clearly, they've had recent experience with that. So that to me is part of the reason why I'm willing to take that chance. But you have to have the discipline to move on if it's not the quick promotion that you're looking for.
1: Yeah, Riley Green, I think, is the other one that's interesting to me. I have some shares of Bruhan. I have zero shares of Lowe. I think Brujan's ahead of Lowe, and I think Bruhan's going to be in a part-time role this year where he just plays all over. I think that'll be hard to decide whether to keep her cut. I think it's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> uh, Riley Green is, I think, a decent one to pick because I think it'll be easier to kind of decide what's going on earlier. A you know, does he start in the major leagues or are they talking about him coming up two weeks in? And then B, there's a real dichotomy between his two outcomes. You got the bat saying he's going to hit 230 with league average power. And then you got everybody else saying he's going to hit 270 with above average power. And I'm not saying you're going to be able to know right away, but I think you'll know, you know, the bat also says 29% strikeout rate. You know, Steamer says 25% strikeout rate. Strikeout rate is one of those things that you actually know about really quickly it it stabilizes fairly quickly now barrel rate you need 50 balls in play but if you see a 25% strikeout rate and a uh, 8 or 9 or 10% barrel rate then i think a lot of the then even if he's not necessarily playing to the exact numbers you want i think he's playable you know what i mean so i think you might be able to make that decision faster you might start getting information faster that's what I want I don't it, it'd be really hard to make a decision on low if he's in the minors mashing that doesn't tell, give me any information it'd be really hard to make a decision on Vidal Bruhan if he's playing
0: three times a week I think the Bruhan problem that I've uh, sort of accepted more recently is that there's a bigger gap between how good he is as a fantasy player and how good he is in real life I think looking back at some of the performances at AAA from the past decade and finding players that went through that level almost regardless of age. but I think I kept it to mostly players that were 23 or younger just to get more Brujan comps or potential Bruhan comps. You don't see that many guys that come through AAA that are about 10% better than league average that go on to be great big league players. And the Mm. thing that will make Bruhan a great fantasy player is if he is, in fact, a good enough, versatile defender where the Rays mix and match and trust him all over, he can cobble together 500 plate appearances. And if you give him 500 plate appearances, you're getting 20 steals with room for more. So I I, I totally understand the peel. I've liked him for a long time. I've thought he walks. He doesn't strike out a lot. There's a ton to like here. And the more I've dug into that profile historically the less excited I am. And by comparison, I think mm. I've I've come to a place where I, I prefer Josh Lowe if I only get a shot at one of them. Like if you gave me ten mm. teams, I might have Bruhan on one and, and Lowe on two and and maybe it's a little more of that based on what I need in a draft, but hopefully I've got I mean, better balance. he did balance.
1: make it to AAA, and he was 42% better than league average AAA. Yeah, and I think... And, and stole some bases himself.
0: 26 for 26 as a base dealer, 22 home runs. Those weren't PCL parks. That's International League parks. Same age for the level, better overall results, uh, just as much in terms of an eye at the plate. And I think... I'm so much more willing to take on this profile from a speedster. I think it's because the, the K rate to me, even if he strikes out 32% of the time, Josh Lowe, if he strikes out 32% of the time as a rookie, he's still taking his walks and he's a center fielder. He's an actual center fielder. And that might matter a lot. I think the hardest thing about taking the chance on Josh Lowe right now is that you – need the Kevin Kiermaier trade to happen or you need to believe that the Rays are, are content to just make Kiermaier their backup outfielder and actually play the younger, more exciting player instead. Not impossible, but far from guaranteed.
1: I think you could squint and see some opportunity in that outfield. It would require the Rays to give up somebody off their 40-man roster, which they don't like to do, right? They don't like to DFA people. They don't like to give up. So Even if you think Brett Phillips you know, not a great player, they might have to drop Brett Phillips in order to get low on the roster. But if you, if you, the best team, like if, if you were running this team, you didn't care about money or DFAing, or losing potential assets. I think the best team right now, this race could, team could put together is Kiermaier Margot in center, low in right, Meadows at DH, Rosarena in left, Right. Right now, if you look at the depth chart, they're like, "Well, Meadows a little bit in the outfield, a little bit of DH, because that's how the Rays work." You know, Margot's going to start some games next to Kiermaier, and you know, and Phillips will get some playing time, and blah 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 blah. But like, you know, if I was running this team, you know, I I think that you could make a decision between Phillips and Margot because the skill sets are too close, right? And uh, once you make that decision, you get an open roster spot and you get a, a viable starting right fielder in there. The hard
0: thing is that they, even as they were previously built, were still scoring plenty of runs. So mm-hmm. they can drag on this a little bit if they want to and wait until they have to make a move before making one. And I,
1: Who are the most likely, two most likely players to get traded on this team? Austin Meadows. Yeah. Um, Austin Meadows and Austin Meadows. I, <laughs> Because I feel like they've been shopping Kiervin Kiermaier forever and they're not going to give you a prospect no. to take him off. here. No.
0: And I just think Meadows having some years of control left being, you know, still a, just about to get expensive. a little on the younger side. Yeah, I, I think he's kind of in that sweet spot where you're you're maximizing what you're getting back in the return. And that is always appealing to a team like Tampa Bay. But if, any team really, if you have that much outfield depth, he's the guy that it makes the most sense to move.
1: Especially since his defense is not trending the right direction, I think if I mean if I think if you trade Meadows ostensibly for arms, maybe I don't know, probably arms. Uh, it's always arms. It's always arms. Arms and prospects. It's almost always arms. Yeah. <laughs> then uh, then Low could 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 come up this year uh, and play more than the two percent or the six percent that the uh, projection systems have for him.
0: You know, one thing we've talked about on this show for a long time is that you really can't afford to have more than one prospect in a redraft league. You you can't burn more than one spot, no, just in, spot in most leagues yeah. because the bench if benches are five to seven players deep, you need guys that are gonna play. So thinking about where these guys all go, are Julio Rodriguez versus Green versus Brujan versus Lowe, you can only have one for your last and most important team. Where would you throw that? Price dart? is all the same. I want Riley Green. Even, even if Rodriguez slips a little, that's interesting. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, is Rodriguez I, clearly I, ahead? And then I just, I,
1: yeah, I, I, I could say if price is all the same, I'll take Julio Rodriguez, but the price will never be the same. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I think the Riley Green price is closer to the other guy's prices. So it's, it's a little, but I think at their prices, I might take low because he's the cheapest. And I don't really want to spend a lot of money on a spot that I might cut in two weeks.
0: Yeah. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And
1: but your this list, I love. I have to tell you, I love this list. You have got a list here.
0: This is an article-worthy um, list. Um, just just because yeah. it's the types of players that people want to be right about, I guess. And uh, I,
1: I'm, I'm. No, no, no. Here, this is what I'm talking about. This list that you have on the rundown, not the list we were just talking about. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I know. I know.
0: Go ahead. Uh, Proceed. That,
1: we were talking about. We we're talking the same language. I'm pretty sure we are. But go ahead. Okay. Continue. This list is where you should get your last outfielder, right?
0: If not, if not even two, you might, you might be able to get two in, in deep enough leagues. It might, might make sense. Two, or, or like yeah. one for your fifth outfielder spot and one of your bench guys or two of your bench outfielders if you are constructed that way.
1: Here's the list. This is good. And and uh, there's a blank here next to Eno, but I'm just going to steal DVR's list. That's, what, <laughs> that's what's happening here.
0: But I'll make it say Jeff McNeil. We like on the screen.
1: Yeah. Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo, Kyle Lewis, Brandon Marsh, Nick Senzel, I have an asterisk on him, Tyrone Taylor, Aaron Hicks, and Stephen Kwan. I mean, I think my last two outfielders in almost every league I've done are on that list.
0: Yeah, the Senzel asterisk is completely fair. It is concerning that the, the last thing they really said about him at the end of the season was it was going to be a while before he's coming back. What that means in September, whether that was frustration and uh, possibly maybe a uh, inexact word choice from David Bell, I-, I think that's possible. I think i I just want to know, like is he on track for the start of spring training, even the delayed start of spring training?
1: Yeah, news would be huge, I think. I mean, I, the the asterisk goes a little bit further than that for me. It was just I just looked at the course of his season last year and it was super worrisome. Like, he had the surgery, and then he was on rehab for so long that they felt like they – I think they might have been being forced by rules or, like, they kind of had to put him back in the minor leagues to play. And then when he played, he didn't steal a single base. And then he was complaining of soreness, and they said he was favoring it in games after the surgery. Yeah. So I, I just don't like that. It just seems like another surgery might be coming because it the first one didn't seem to take. Now maybe the whole offseason a bunch of rest and and you know rehab and and he'll be good and, and then if he's good, then he's good. But you know, also stolen bases are a big part of why you might like him. So what if he's okay, he comes back, his knee's okay, but he doesn't really want to steal a bunch of bases, and now you're talking about a guy who could maybe be like, you know, a two fifty hitter with fifteen homers and two stolen bases.
0: I think some of the projected slash lines are are pulling me back in. The Bat-X has Senzel at 274, 335, 442. It's a pretty good slash line for a guy that's well outside the top 300 overall. I I think the knee may have been part of the reason why he just wasn't even trying to steal bases and why he went two for seven as a base stealer. I think when you go back to 2019, that big league debut, he was 14 for 19 that year, held his own, Mm -hmm. didn't have problematic reach rates i just think you can you can look at what happened to him in 2021 and convince yourself that the on-field performance was completely shaped by the injury that's why you get the big discount i'm worried that's
1: like a like not like necessarily a career ending but like a career altering type injury and it, so. it could be
0: and kyle lewis has dealt with that too who's in this group mm-hmm. but i mean this is an improving lineup he's shown some interesting skills good barreler uh maybe playing a little more as a dh is on the table as the outfield gets more crowded I think with McNeil and Nimmo, I mean, McNeil, you get a guy that's actually also eligible at second base. He's versatile. It's cheap batting average. And I don't think the the 2019 power never seemed real to me, but I also don't think he's a five-home run guy over a full season. I think there's a lot of similarities still between Jeff McNeil and DJ LeMayhew in terms of what they can bring with an offensive profile. I know you've liked Brandon Nimmo for a long time, and he could be their leadoff guy because of his OBP skills the power around the injuries has looked like it's been elevated for a couple of years now. So now we're just like hoping for 550 to 600 plate appearances for everything to come together with Nimo, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I mean, the barrel rates aren't great, but the max EV is all right. And the power, the ISO has gone up and down. So I am hoping for, you know, 15 to 20 homers, uh, 10 stolen bases and, you know, doing that in, in a large amount of time. And I think that, His OBP is very excellent, so I don't. Marte does make things a little bit more complicated, but I kind of feel like you go Nemo Marte at the top of that lineup. And if the if the lineup has a little bit of a mini resurgence, then you know now you're talking about good counting stats with all that stuff. So, um, and then just it's a play on here's a guy who has extreme elite uh, sense of the zone and good contact rates. So, who were we just talking about that it was a little bit like that? Elite contact rate, good sense of the zone? No, elite sense of the zone, good contact rate. We were just looking at a player like that. Anyway, um, I, I like to bet on players like that.
0: Yeah, Bruhan I think, has it a little bit. Senzel has that a little bit. But, yeah, it's a good profile to dig into. Uh, Brandon Marsh came a little earlier on the pod. I think center field defense is key. He was coming off of shoulder surgery last year. I think just a healthier offseason progression for him bodes really well. I think it's a little bit of a do everything sort of profile. We're still waiting for the game power to fully show up, but I don't care about that if he hits eight homers or 10 homers, but 11% bail rate, dude. I, I, just, I don't it, know. Two homers in 70 games though last year. I don't know. I don't
1: I, I'm looking at the barrel rate, man. I think the homer rate is not telling you the story here. Look at his ISOs in the minor leagues. Look at his homer rates. I, I think you. I think the barrel rate tells you more. And look at the bat X. The bad X gives him his best homer projection. I believe that one right there. I believe like league average power. And I think that uh, he's got the ability to take that center field job and I think he steals bases. So If you want to, I'm putting my rosiest glasses on right now, but what I see is the guy who takes center field and plays it and is ready to go and has shown more than Adele um, already and, you know, I think he's just more ready to go, higher floor. So I'm going to give him the job in center field. I'm going to give him 600 plate appearances. I'm going to give him a 255 batting average with
0: 20 homers and 15 steals. I... I think I'm expecting more like a 10-20, like 10 homers, 20 steals. I understand exactly where that's coming from. I wonder if the barrels are, are coming with more swing and miss. 35% K percentage last year. He was at 26.4% at AAA, the brief time that he spent there. So I'm a little worried about some batting average risk. He's always drawn walks, though, so that that's good in terms of just his overall offensive profile. Uh, the, the underlying numbers, the quality of the contact is very encouraging. But even at Double A back in 2019 seven homers in 96 mm. games like it just seems like something still still developing and the un- I
1: believe there was some injury stuff I think that's why he didn't play it all in 2020
0: it was it was the shoulder yeah but yeah maybe that's what ultimately maybe it was that affecting power. him
1: in 2019 you know and
0: if that's the case he was playing very well a lot of ground balls that year too and that was something that had actually changed for him at the big league level too so he's doing a lot of the things you need to do to unlock that power Does it all happen at once? Does it happen progressively? You know that's part of the the question that has to be answered. It's a
1: bad strikeout rate, but he has he had low swinging strike rates in the minor leagues, and he didn't have a bad reach rate last year. So I don't know. He's one of my favorite uh, late late picks. I really like Marsh. I've got a a fair amount of shares on him. I'm
0: into Tyrone. I've got some Hicks too
1: too. I've got some Hicks. I feel like Hicks is the center fielder there. Has to be
0: as long as he's healthy, he's the guy, and he's high in the order too.
1: High in the order, good walk rate, and, you know, kind of a, a, a strikeout rate and a power rate and a batting average that kind of jump around. So could go either way on that, really.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think with Tyrone Taylor, I'm looking at a guy that's showing some similarly like interesting underlying numbers in the batted ball profile. Plus, uh, unfortunately,
1: a right hander,
0: a righty. Yeah, not, not as like good as far as like the barrel rates and hard hit rates we were just talking about with Marsh, but he flashed that a little bit in 2020 and wasn't bad in that regard in 2021, has some speed he was six for seven as a base dealer, as a part time player has a center, can play center field, which with- Kane is old, Kane's old and has dealt with a lot of, of soft tissue injuries. Jackie Bradley Jr.'s gone. So that just pushes mm-hmm. Taylor into that backup center field spot. Plus, you've got Christian Yelich's creaky back as a possible path to playing time in one corner. DH.
1: Although and, NLDH, I think, will be more for Rowdy Tellez and Keston But
0: Yeah, I think it gives them a chance to coexist. But if one of them's not hitting, then there's playing time available Taylor there too. Yeah. It comes yeah. down to just seeing a, a pretty skilled player that can do a little bit of everything. It's got multiple paths into the lineup. I mean, Hunter Renfro, as good as he was last year, is he necessarily a, a max volume player? Probably not. There's probably some some days off it's, for him too. It,
1: it's just good to see Tyrone Taylor is the primary backup at four positions right now on the depth charts. Yeah. They have him as the primary backup at DH, a right field center and left. I mean, that's, that's a good way to accrue plate appearances. Although I think it is uh, somebody you'd rather have in daily leagues. Because it will be hard to predict this on a weekly level.
0: Plays really well in uh, ultra-deep leagues, though, too. 20-plus teams, mm-hmm. NL and, and only for the handful of people out there that play in that format. Uh, last name we're going to talk about. We'll save the UT players for a future episode, just because this one's going to be pretty long if we get to them today. Stephen Kwan. Uh, amazingly low strikeout rate at AAA. 6.7% last year. Walked 11.7% of the time. Only five home runs, but it was only 26 games, so I think that's a good thing. You saw seven more homers at Double A over 51 games. The, the ISOs were pretty
1: good last year, 202 and 194.
0: Projections are not buying the power because he hadn't shown it in the minors previously, but I could also see this being a pretty unusual set of circumstances for projections to fully account for
1: yeah it's a it's a it's a pretty interesting profile i mean I think it is it's indicative of what they're trying to do in Cleveland. They're trying to get a lot of Stephen Kwans and see if they can coach up the power um and sometimes it turns into Jose Ramirez It's fun when that happens i i i I have looked at Jose Ramirez's past and I can't say that you can use Jose Ramirez as like a predictive thing where you're like, oh yeah duh he was always supposed to be this guy. He he was not supposed to be this guy. <laughs> no. for, for the first three years of his career, he did what like you might expect Stephen Kwan to do, which is strike out like eleven percent of the time with you know ten homer power.
0: Yeah, Jose Ramirez was very young. He slugged three forty nine at double A back in twenty thirteen. <laughs> uh, it was speed, speed, and speed over power with a good hit tool. Like that, I think was probably the most rosy outlook. I think that's what they're doing in in in
1: Cleveland is trying to find guys with good hit tools and trying to trying to coach up the power.
0: Yeah, I like Kwan more as the bench outfielder dart as opposed to someone that I'm expecting to have playing right away playing. because you want to see how the first couple of weeks turn out and you may have to. It's let pretty him go. deep.
1: I mean, I, I he's he was my first pick in ale only
0: reserves. So just to give you an idea of how deep you want your league to be, if he hits a few homers in whatever. Shell of spring training we get, then OK, you know, get some good might, exit go numbers, up. different things that could come up from that that could lead to a little more excitement. I know he's been on a few uh, over uh, overlooked sort of prospect lists and, and deep, deep sleeper lists. So it's not a total secret, but definitely got it has a path in Cleveland. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. You can get a subscription for $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash Rates and Barrels. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. You can drop us an email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com, and you can ask questions in the comment section under this video on YouTube. Be sure to hit the like button if you've been watching us on YouTube. Thanks for sticking around for more than an hour. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you on Monday.